Well, good morning. Um, today, what I wanted to discuss, uh, at least begin discussing, is the 39 Articles of Religion. Um, as someone relatively new to formally being in an Anglican context, I really haven't heard much about the 39 Articles. Um, maybe some of the some jurisdictions care more about this than others, um, and certainly some people on the internet seem to care a lot about the 39 Articles. Um, but I'm interested, as they are the only sort of coherent um, and organized uh, statement of, of distinct Anglican uh, doctrine, uh, which makes sense as people who are really fond of their prayer book, and we say things all the time like, um, Lex Rindy, Lex Fridindi, that is the law of prayer, it's the law of belief. Uh, we take actually, as our final authority, of course, scripture, but underneath scripture we take the Book of Common Prayer and the Ordinal uh, from 1662. So, um, but nevertheless, 39 articles are there, and one of the fun things that Anglicans disagree about is how much they matter. And um, so what I just want to do is, I don't know, briefly talk about maybe if they matter, and then kind of walk through uh, various ways they could be they could be read. I mean, the majority of the articles are completely uncontroversial, just basic Christian orthodoxy, but some of them are a little more, um, a little more specific. So uh, this might be the first video in a series. This might just be a complete flop. I don't know. We'll find out together. So, um, what I have here open is the, um, first of all, actually, I'm just going to pray. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, who has revealed to us the truth, revealed uh, in Holy Scripture, and guided your church in all truth, help us who consider these things uh, these statements of belief uh, from various uh, churches, um, consider them in light of your um, your will and of, uh, as St. Augustine says, uh, the need to build up double love of God and neighbor. We ask all this through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start. I'm on the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the 2019 Anglican Church of North America Book of Common Prayer uh, PDF. You can download it for free on their website. Um, I'm at Towards the end of the book, they have what they call documentary foundations, um, which includes things like uh, 39 articles, the Jerusalem Declaration, um, the West, the 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 Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral, stuff like that. Um, and so, one of those is the 39 articles. But before that, they 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 include what they call the fundamental declarations of the province. So this is part of the Constitution and Canons of the Anglican Church of North America when it was. Um, birthed uh, in 2009. So uh, here's what it says. As the Anglican Church in North America, the province being a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of Christ, we believe and confess Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Therefore, we identify the following seven elements as characteristic of the Anglican way and essential for membership. Okay, so these are uncontroversial. We confess the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments to be the inspired word of God, containing all things necessary for salvation, and to be the final authority and unchangeable standard for Christian faith and life. Okay, so this is the Reformation uh, doctrine of sola scriptura, not the truncated evangelical version, which is that if I can't get it out of the Bible, then it's wrong. Uh, rather, this is the idea that as a final court of appeal, um, scripture arbitrates. It is the highest authority, but it's not the only authority. The church clearly also has authority. Um, the second bit here is, uh, we confess baptism in the supper of the Lord to be the sacraments ordained by Christ himself in the gospel, and thus to be ministered with unfailing use of his words of institution and of the elements ordained by him. Okay. 
you know, the big two sacraments. Third, we confess the godly historic episcopate as an inherent part of the apostolic faith and practice, and therefore is integral to the fullness and unity of the body of Christ. Okay, so we need to have bishops, um, is what it's saying. Um, which implies the threefold order, bishops, priests, and deacons held by the ancient church and the vast majority of Christians since um, the beginning. Fourth, we confess as proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture the historic faith of the undivided church. So this is pre-East-West um, pre split. As declared in the three Catholic creeds, Catholic, of course, in here meaning according to the whole or universal, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian uh, Creed. Uh, typically, the Apostles' Creed is the um, symbol of baptism. The Nicene Creed is the um, kind of statement of belief of the whole church. And the Athanasian Creed specifically clarifies uh, Trinitarian uh, theology. Fifth, concerning the seven councils of the undivided church, we affirm the teaching of the first four councils. Um, so... Those are the first four of the seven, and then the Christological clarifications of the fifth, sixth, and seventh councils, insofar as they are agreeable to holy scriptures. Yeah, so scripture of the highest authority, and there are councils of the undivided church, which we take very seriously, uh, especially the first four. Um, five, six, and seven don't really have a lot of new things in them anyway. Um, I think the biggest controversy here would be on uh, the seventh council's teaching on icons, and that's something we'll get into when we get into the 39 articles. Uh, sixth, we received the Book of Common Prayer as set forth by the Church of England in 1662, together with the ordinal attached to the same as, as a standard for Anglican doctrine and discipline, and with the books which preceded it as the standard for the Anglican tradition of worship. All right, so the Book of Common Prayer and the ordinal are a standard for doctrine and discipline, so we can derive um, some theology and doctrine from the BCP, uh, but it is the standard for the Anglican tradition of worship. So it's how generally we should worship together is according to the Book of Common Prayer. And then finally, number seven, and what concerns us today, is we received the 39 Articles of Religion of 1571, taken in their literal and grammatical sense as expressing the Anglican response to certain doctrinal issues, controverted at the time, and as expressing fundamental principles of authentic Anglican belief. Okay, there's a lot of hedging going on in that, uh, in that statement. So, <laughs> um, I, I want to read this last paragraph here to help give some context, and then we're going to return to this number seven. In all these things, the Anglican Church uh, in North America is determined by the help of God to hold and maintain as the Anglican way has received them, the doctrine, discipline, and worship of Christ, and to transmit the same unimpaired to our posterity. We seek to be and remain in full communion with all Anglican churches, dioceses, and provinces that hold and maintain the historic faith, doctrine, sacraments, and discipline of the one Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic Church. All right, so the self-understanding of the province is as a, as a branch member of the One Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic Church, seeking communion with those who are the same. All right, so let's go back up to number seven here. Uh, we received the 39 Articles of Religion of 1571, okay? We received them. How do we receive them? Well, we've received them taken in their literal and grammatical sense. Okay, so... You can't just like read the articles and impose your own meaning on them. I think this is a shot at uh, John Henry Newman's famous track 90, um, which sought to read the articles in a very pro-Roman uh, uh, manner. Um, okay, as expressing the Anglican response. Okay, so it's not a statement of faith for the Anglican communion. It's expressing an Anglican response to certain doctrinal issues controverted at that time. Okay, so issues of, of controversy in the 16th century. 
and as expressing fundamental principles of authentic Anglican belief. So not every article, uh, word for word, sentence for sentence, is designed or intended by um, this province to be binding. Rather, uh, the 39 articles are an example of how to apply certain fundamental principles of Anglican belief to specific controverted issues of back in the day, and perhaps as a model for how we ought to apply uh, Anglican principles to certain controverted issues of our day, namely biblical and then patristic and then ecumenical, right, in our order of, of thinking about these things. All right, so no one, as far as I know, although I don't know if every diocese is the same, but as far as I know, the diocese, various dioceses of the Anglican Church of North America do not require the clergy to subscribe to the 39 articles um, in, in belief. They don't have to give the assent or even promise not to contravene them, as far as I know. Right? I think the only vow you take is to obey the bishop and to um, affirm that you will only teach from and live from, live according to the uh, word of God contained in the Old and New Testaments. Um, I think it's different in England. Um, the Church of England itself, I think the ministers there are supposedly subscribed to the 39 articles, but they've, they apparently have bigger fish to fry with what's going on over there. So um, I don't think any Anglican needs to get uh, nervous about the 39 articles. They are not binding in a sense of a constitution. Uh, they're not the Book of Concord like the Lutherans have, where every Lutheran pastor and confessional Lutheran body is supposed to subscribe to the full contents of the Book of Concord. They are not the Westminster uh, standards that the Presbyterian ministers are supposed to subscribe to. They're not the London Baptist Confession that certain Reformed Baptist groups um, require their ministers to subscribe to. It's not even the Baptist faith and message of the Southern Baptist Convention that sort of says guardrails on orthodoxy for um, for Southern Baptists. It's a uh, example, model, and a starting place for how to do Anglican, uniquely Anglican theology in light of controverted subjects. Okay. Now, that being said, the articles certainly do possess authority. Okay, They possess authority because they were adopted by uh, the uh, bishops of the Anglican Church, uh, the Church of England at the time, um, and because they have been adopted and promulgated by every province, as far as I know, uh, within the Anglican uh, communion. Some of them requiring subscription, others only saying, you know, this is something we um, believe is important, um, but it's not necessarily binding in every way. And especially because we already affirmed back up in number... Um, three, no, number number one, that the canonical books of the Old and New Testament contain all things necessary for salvation and are the final authority and unchangeable standard. I mean, imagine if we go to the 39 articles and we say, well, this just contradicts contradict scripture, then we're going to need to prefer scripture over the 39 articles. And all that being said, I would love to talk about the articles because I think they're really interesting. Um, so we'll move past that, past the creed which I love the Athanasian Creed. Okay, 39 articles. Um, I'm going to start with the first one here. This is not controversial. A faith in the Holy Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting without body, parts or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay, this is just a summary of what is already in the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed, right? Um, and the implied in the Apostles' Creed. Okay, there's one God, one substance, one um, usias, um, and he is uh, exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about three different gods. We're not talking about three parts of God. Okay, we're talking about one God in three persons. This is the 
ancient um, definition, right? We have of the Trinity. Um, further, though, uh, attributes that this that God possesses, um, God is everlasting. He has no body. Okay, the second person of the Trinity, uh, God the Son, took on a human body, uh, but God Himself has no body. Okay, He has no parts. He's not composed. God is simple. Um, and he has no passions. That is, God doesn't change. He has no emotions, right? Um, when the scriptures speak of God as uh, becoming angry or joyous, those are, of course, analogs or analogies for um, for God. I know that some contemporary, sometimes Protestant analytic philosophers of religion don't really like this, this notion of simplicity, and they want to talk about um, God in a more uh, relational way, um, or as possessing attributes or properties or something. I think it's deeply misguided. I'm not going to get into the whole debate about that. Um, I mean, I think you can in good faith hold that. I just don't think it's uh, classical or um, adheres with the um, the Jewish and Christian uh, traditions about God. Infinite power. He can do whatever he wants uh, within that's logically possible. Infinitely wise, infinitely good. He made everything. He keeps everything. God is the end-all, be-all, the source of all things. Okay. Article 2. There's no debate there. That's classic Trinitarian um, doctrine. Article 2. Of the Word or Son of God, which was made very man. The Son, which is the Word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and was buried, to reconcile his Father to us, and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. All right. A um, little bit more controversy in here, but not much. So the Son, that is the second person of the Trinity, he is the word or logos of the Father, begotten of everlasting of the Father. So the Son is always being begotten of the Father. He's, there's never a time when he is not being begotten. Um, this begetting is eternal. It's not, uh, Christ did not begin at a certain point, right? We're controverting the Arian heresy here. Um, he is, in fact, God, okay? And of one substance, homoousios is the Greek, with the Father. He then took on human nature, in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, of her substance. So he is truly human and has genes, you know, he's genetically related to Mary. Um, that two whole and perfect natures, okay, that is to say Godhead, Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided. This is the, this is the, what's called the definition of Chalcedon. It comes straight from the, the creed of, um, or straight from the Council of Chalcedon, right? Uh, so the second person of the Trinity is one person with two natures, Okay. Um, never to be divided, whereas one of one uh, is one Christ, okay? And this Christ, this one Christ is very God and very man, truly God and truly man. He truly suffered and was crucified. He truly died and was buried. Okay? He actually, you know, we're combating the docetists here. He truly died. He's truly buried. He truly suffered. This is actually happened to the second person of the Trinity. To reconcile the, his father to us, okay? We were estranged from God and uh, something about the cross and then the resurrection reconciles us to God. The Father, and He is a sacrifice. Okay, um, the sacrifice for sins, um, not only for original guilt, which we will talk about the meaning of that, and in, in a later article, but also for actual sins of men. Right. So He He atoned for everything. Um, there's nothing beyond Christ's death that is necessary to reconcile us to the Father. All right. The third uh, article of the going down of Christ into hell. 
as Christ died for us and was buried, so also it is to believe that he went down into hell. Okay, this is, the way this is worded is controversial. So, um, this is pulling from the Apostles' Creed, which in English has usually been translated as, uh, he descended into hell. Um, and that itself is coming from, uh, I think, First Peter, which talks about um, Christ descending into hell. And St. Paul says also that uh, Christ descended into the innermost parts of the earth. But actually what um, First Peter says is it says the word Hades there. And what uh, the original Greek of the Apostles' Creed says is that he descended to Hades. It is to the place of death, the realm of the dead. And this isn't hell in the sense of an eternal place of torment, nor is it separation from God the Father as if that were possible. Right, so whatever we take this to mean, it can't mean that the Trinity is is broken. There could be, of course, the notion that he harrowed hell, which is a really big in the Orthodox communion. Um, that he went to descended to the dead, realm of the dead, preached the gospel, led out the captives um, that were there, and uh, subjugated the forces of evil. Or we could take this as a reaffirmation of the fact that he truly died. He truly went to the place of the dead. That is, his soul and body were severed. His body really began to rot. He really did die. Article 4 of the resurrection of Christ. Christ did truly rise again from death and took again his body with flesh and bones and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven, and there he sitteth until the return to judge all men at the last day. Again, this is just reaffirming Christ has a real body, and he still has this real body, and it's actually his body that he had as a man before his death and burial. He was resurrected into his actual body, but it was renewed into um, the perfection of man's nature. So grace is perfected nature in, in Christ. So his body doesn't seem to obey, have to obey the laws of physics, for example. Uh, it can fly and go through walls and suddenly appear and um, be present in lots of different places. At the, for example, the Holy Eucharist, when the body and blood of our Lord becomes present to us. Death of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost proceeding from the Father and the Son is of one substance, majesty, and glory with the Father and the Son, very and eternal God. All right, so this is just affirming again that the Holy Spirit is also God. Uh, the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father. This article adds, and the Son, this is the filioque, it's in the Western version of the Nicene Creed, the Eastern version of the Creed, the original Creed does not have the filioque, the and the Son, that they say proceeds from the Father. This is not to say that the Holy Spirit does not proceed from the Son, just that the most ecumenical thing we could do probably is omit and the Son from our recitation of the Creed. Um, it might be a little bit more nuanced to say that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father through the Son. I think that we could get um, the East on board with that kind of language. But essentially, the, the Holy Spirit um, is related to the Father and the Son, is truly God, has all the attributes of God, um, is not an impersonal force, but is a person, the third member, third person of the Holy Spirit. Trinity. Do one more here and we're going to push pause. Article 6 of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scriptures, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament, of whose authority was never any doubt in the Church, of the names and number of the canonical books, and here we have the Old Testament books everyone agrees with, um, and then we have, and the other books, as uh, Hiram, that's, that's um, Jerome, 
The church doth read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but yet doth it not apply to them to establish any doctrine, such as the following, and it lists what is commonly called the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanon, and then these uh, books of the New Testament that everyone already agrees with. Okay. Um, again, this, the notion is that there's nothing that should be required of anyone to believe, uh, nor that is necessary for salvation that cannot be found either taught in Scripture or proved from the Scriptures. And um, though the Apocrypha may be read, it may be only read for instruction in life and morals and not for the derivation of doctrine. And we will pick this up at a later time. Thank you all. You have a blessed day.